Welcome to the Aspen Chapel, to our podcast on today, Sunday, March the 5th. And today we're looking at the nature of trust. Roses by Mary Oliver. Everyone now and again wonders about those questions that have no ready answers. First cause, God's existence. What happens when the curtain goes down and nothing stops it? Not kissing, not going to the mall, not the Super Bowl. Wild roses, I said to them one morning. Do you have the answers? And if you do, would you tell me? The roses laughed softly. Forgive us, they said. But as you can see, we are just now entirely busy being roses. Everyone now and again wonders about those questions that have no ready answers. First cause, God's existence. What happens when the curtain goes down and nothing stops it? Not kissing, not going to the mall, not the Super Bowl. Wild roses, I said to them one morning. Do you have the answers? And if you do, would you tell me? The roses laughed softly. Forgive us, they said. But as you can see, we are just now entirely busy being roses. It's nice to hear a poem twice sometimes. Because when you hear it once, it's just a flashes by and you sort of guess it at the end. And when you hear it twice, you go, oh, yes, that's it. Just to explain. <laughs> I didn't say this before. I need to forget this. But I put a slip in your form saying new to the Aspen Chapel. And that really is, if you've just sort of arrived within the last two or three months um, and you'd like to meet a few people, just to hear about the chapel, what our aims are, our ambitions, just fill this slip in and put it in the plate when it comes round. And we'll do this a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, and then when we get a group of people, we'll have an event in the evening, maybe with some drinks or something like that. And we'll just sort of uh, have a chat about what the chapel's about and all that sort of business. So do put this in the, in the uh, fill it in if you'd like to be a part of that. Now, over the last few weeks, um, we've spoken quite a bit um, about the nature of fear. We've spoken about the nature of fear. And um, we've looked at um, the fact that at the moment in our society, there's almost an industrialization of fear in the way that uh, our society contains situations using force through incarceration, military might, and aggression. You know, there's the, almost there's the politicization of fear, using fear to drive political agendas. You know, over the years, we've had the spiritualization of fear, which is where the church used fear as a currency to bring people under their control. And you can also look at the collectivization of fear, where feudal lords and, and very primitive countries use fear of famine to force people into subjugation. And I've been saying that nowadays, I think we're still very much run by fear as we go about our daily lives. And if we cannot trans, transform fear, if we can't transform it, it forces us, it drives us into action. Our fear forces us to do things. And I think that leads us open 
to people and institutions who will use our desire to act out of our fear to manipulate us to their own agendas, whether that be political, religious, or merely about hatred. Fear is such a driver, and people recognize it as that. So I was thinking last week uh, in the reception uh, about what the opposite of fear was. And I was talking to C.P. Knife about this, and we were chatting about what it was. And at first we thought maybe the opposite of fear, I wonder what you think it is, but we thought, first of all, that maybe the opposite of fear was love. But then we sort of came to a bit of a realisation that really the opposite of fear is actually, or or the, the, the sort of move through fear is actually trust. That's... The other side of fear is trust. And I think that's quite an interesting thought. And I thought, you know, what what is trust about? I mean, there is a line in, obviously, 1 John that says, perfect love casts out fear. That's a good old biblical line, that perfect love casts out fear. But when you look more deeply at it, you can see that in order to be able to attain that love, you have to trust first. Is a necessity to trust. And I think that relates to so much of our experience today. We fear because we don't trust that we'll be looked after. We fear that things will end badly for us because we don't trust that there's someone or something that will catch us in our need. We fear for our economic welfare because we don't trust that there's enough to go around. When we live in fear, we look around to see what we can put our trust in. When we experience fear, we're looking to what we can put our trust in. And that might be just ourselves or maybe family and friends or maybe institutions, maybe politicians. We put our our trust in what seems reliable. And so key question really is, you know, what can you put your trust in? What can you put your trust in? Trust's actually a 12th century word, meaning that which you can rely on, that which is strong and that which is safe. And when you look around, you see why there's so much fear in the world, because there's not much that you can actually rely on. So much of the world is is focused on material needs, that when you Look at what we can rely on. We often look at what will provide for us. What's going to provide for us? What will put food on the table? Who will look after my children? And more often than not, that involves allying ourselves with people or organizations that are collectively stronger than we we would be individually. You know, we put our trust in in places where we can come together. We trust the company we work for. We sometimes trust the market. We trust our broker. We trust our union. We trust our country. We trust our military. We we trust a strong politician. We trust a king who tells us that we will gain lands and riches in battle. We trust our religion that tells us that all will be well if we follow their dictates. And what that does is allay our fears. We're able to park those fears in the hands of others. We can say, look, here's my fear. You look after it so I don't have to worry. 
and we rest peacefully in our beds until, 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 well, you know, there's the rub. Because there's always an until, because the way that we've allayed our fears has always been temporary. I always think, you know, there's the rub is an interesting expression. There's the rub. And, you know, it comes from the game of, the English game of bowls. There's the rub. The rub is a flaw in the playing surface that interferes with the ball's trajectory. That's where it comes from. In the game of bowls, when, uh, you know, people were playing it, if there was a flaw, it was called the rub. And in today's, you know, idiomatic sense, the rub is a difficulty or impediment. And this phrase, there's the rub, Anyone know where it came from? What made it famous? Very good. David Florio, welcome back into the chapel. How lovely to have you here. Peace. And his back is better. So I said to women, treat him carefully now because his back is, his uh, knees is a bit delicate. But there's, it is Shakespeare. It comes from this, to be or not to be. There is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing them to die, to sleep no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand mortal shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? When we have shuffled off, this mortal coil must give us pause. Isn't that amazing? Just in that one soliloquy, we've got all those famous English expressions like what dreams may come and shuffle off this mortal coil. These amazing expressions that come. And there's the rub is one of those. It's all about, that little soliloquy is all about our fears. We put our trust in all sorts of things as a way of allaying our fears. And as a result... We end up in the mercy of our company, in the mercy of our broker, of our union, of our politician, of our king. We end up at the mercy of our religion. Whether it is nobler to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing them to die, to sleep no more. Death there as a way of allaying our fears. But how how do we deal with fear? Where can we put our trust in a way that will not leave us at the mercy of these outside forces? Well, I think it's interesting in all these ways, you know, the broker, the religion of dealing with fear, they're a result of our minds trying to work out what outcome will best allay the fears we have. We just try and work it all out. And fear is a result of imagined outcomes that we do not want. Fear is a result of imagined outcomes that we do not want. You know, I was writing this. It's always the way. I was writing this, you know, doing my thing. Let's talk talk about trust and things like that. And, um, you know, I was, as a a minister, I live, you know, quite close to the edge when it comes to finances, you know. And you you wait for your, your... your tax rebate to come just to tide you over, you know. So I was like, hmm, a tax rebate is coming, you know. And then I get this letter from the IRS saying, we are going to be fully, in, I, myself and Heather are going to be fully investigated by the IRS to make sure that our tax rebate is right. 
And so, you know, I, I talked to my tax and he said, oh, that means you're not going to get your tax rebate for the next two months. Oh, no! So I at least had my expenses from the church. So I, I put that, those in the bank just to make sure things were all right. And looked in my account two days later and they weren't there. And I rang at the bank and said, oh, we seem to have put them in the wrong account. They've gone somewhere else. So suddenly I was like, oh, my goodness me. And I could feel the fear appearing. I thought, no, everything's okay. You know, I've done nothing wrong. And I could just feel it rising. And it was all outcomes that I didn't want. And when I, you know, in reality, nothing was going to happen, I knew. But I could feel that fear rising. All such fear, actually, is based on an illusion. All those fears that I had, complete illusion. You know, I could handle it all. It wasn't a problem, but the fear was there. It's the way our minds spur us into action of a perceived threat. That's what fear is. Our mind's purpose, the purpose of the mind is to survive. And when it sees its survival threatened, it will use fear to spur us on to action to get rid of that threat. The obvious problem with this is that we're not in control of our circumstances. So whenever we decide to park our fear at some point is likely to come back and to haunt us. As the one thing that you can rely on in life is that circumstances will change. That's the one thing you can definitely rely on, that circumstances will change. So if you park your fear somewhere, it will come back to you. And as one fear goes away, another will soon take its place. And we're completely back to square one. And that's because we're focused on outcomes in our lives. And imagine ones at that. We imagine these outcomes. So the fear we're dealing with in many cases is self-generated and illusory. So how can we deal with fear in a way that's not just a temporary fix? Well, I think the key word is obviously temporary here. If we're going to find something that will enable us to trust so deeply that fear becomes a secondary issue, We have to look at something that's not temporary. Temporary actually obviously means of time. We have to look at something that is outside time, something that's eternal. And you can see where I'm going with this. You know, here I am, minister of religion. This is a chapel. If it looks like God and it smells like God and it sounds like God, then I'm definitely about to come out with a God solution. Matthew 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and thieves break in at steel, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths do not destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But for me, that won't do either. I don't think that it's not enough to believe that we're looked after. I don't think it's enough. You know, so often we do that and we're still disappointed. Expectation is an upset waiting to happen. And disappointment is one that did. You know, we're going to get these disappointments. You know, we wrap up our religion in our expectation that it will deliver us from the outcomes that we want. That we will not get ill, that our family will be protected, and even that our team will win. And in so doing, you know, we're putting our trust in God so that we will be okay. 
And we all know that it doesn't work. You know, sooner or later, the team loses, our families suffer, we get a diagnosis, and our trust is once more left in tatters. The fear returns. We've only parked our fear, this, and this time in religion. So how do we release ourselves from fear? What can we trust in? And surely this is key if we're going to break the cycle that makes fear the currency that makes the world grow round, which it is. And I think it's a really key issue. How do we break the cycle of fear? It's the main driver for action in our personal lives, in our communities, in our country, in our world. How do we break it? What can we rely on? We're going to talk about that next week. Um, Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You can't go to that in your sermon. When you're writing, what am I going to say now? (laughs) Well, let's tell him we'll tell him about it next week and we'll work it all out. No, no, I'm not going to do that. Let's do it now. (laughs) Do you know, I'm afraid it all comes back, you know, I think it has to come back to Einstein again. You know, I bored people with this forever, you know, which is when Einstein arrived in America, he was asked, what's the most important question you can ask about life? When Einstein appeared, he was asked by a reporter when he got off the boat in 1930-something, what is the most important question you can ask about life? And Einstein said the most important question you can ask about life is, is the universe a friendly place or not? Is the universe a friendly place or not? Because if the universe is not a friendly place, you have to spend all your resources, all your understanding, everything you've got to protect yourself against an unfriendly universe. But if the universe is a friendly place, then you have to spend all your resources, all your understanding, everything you've got, working out how to cooperate with a friendly universe. And that's key. And that's a key thing in looking at our lives and looking at, 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 you know, at how it works. And the first step we have to ask ourselves is, you know, do we accept the universe is a friendly place? That's a really key question to ask ourselves. And this really takes us right into the nature of how the universe is ordered. And we have to, we really, you know, if we look in our lives, we really have to ask ourselves that, you know, can we trust our family, our health and our wealth to a friendly universe? Well, obviously the answer is no. Because once more, you know, we're looking at outcomes. Once more, we're looking at outcomes. We're wrapping up our fear in another religious type of belief that we hope will deal with the problems for us. There are two aspects, I think, in the formulation of a trust that is outside time. And we're looking for a trust that's outside time, that's eternal. And one relates to the fundamental existence of order. And the other relates, I think, and this is key, to letting go of control. To letting go of trying to control our lives. We have to realize that, you know, take a deep breath, but we're not in control of the outcomes of our life and must therefore give up any expectation around those outcomes. You know, that wonderful Buddhist phrase, you know, O seeker, rely on nothing until you want nothing. Rely on nothing until you want nothing. You know, we so... attached to those outcomes and all our fear relates to those outcomes you know and I I want to say that's not to say that we shouldn't strive to create a better life I mean really of course we should you know we should strive to create a better life for ourselves for our family for the world 
just that we shouldn't put our salvation, our place of safety, that's what it means, salvation. We shouldn't see our salvation in the outcome of those efforts. There is no safety in the outcome of those efforts. In other words, we have, and this is the bad news, we have to have the fear. You have to have it there. Whatever fear our mind gives us and try not to park it elsewhere. We have to trust in the fact, as Julian of Norwich says, that all will be well and all manner of things will be well. And that whatever the outcome, whatever the outcome, in our efforts, we are making a contribution to the unfolding of a perfection that includes whatever outcome befalls us. We're making a contribution to the unfolding of a perfection that includes whatever outcome befalls us. We are the soil from which the tree of life grows. Our lives are the soil from which the tree of life grows. And whether we and our family succeed or fail in our own eyes makes no difference to that outcome. The concept of success and failure of us and our family in relationship to the perfection and the outcome of the nature of consciousness does not bear any relation, that outcome. Our desire, our our, our striving, our, our willingness to be open does make a difference. Our willingness to let go of those outcomes does. Fear and anger are a part of living. We have to accept and receive them, not try and park them outside ourselves. And by letting go of our concern for outcomes, by letting go of control of how it will all end, we have the humility to be part of something infinitely greater than ourselves. We have the humility to be part of something infinitely greater than ourselves. Trust is a way of letting go of worry. You let go of worry when you stop worrying about the outcomes. It quietens the mind. If we can begin to practice that in our lives, if we can recognize our fears, see where they're coming from, recognize what is illusory from what needs action, we can stop trying to give our fears to other people to look after, but instead have our fear and not act out of it. Then we're modeling the changes that need to take place in the way that humanity deals with fear. We're modeling that. If we're able to do that, if we can have our fear and not doubt of it, act out of it, then we're modeling the changes that need to take place in the way that humanity deals with fear. And you may say, and it's a question will come, well, what difference is that going to make in the scheme of things? And to answer that, I just refer you back to the message I gave two weeks ago. What you do does make a difference. The action you take on your feelings, on your fears, on the things that happen does make a difference. You are fundamentally, fundamentally connected to all that happens. What we do makes a difference to ourselves, to those around us, and in the way of the hundredth monkey, to all creation. Amen. Let's pray. And we just acknowledge the amount of fear that is in the world at the moment. How much is driving action, driving tanks, driving behavior, 
driving relationships. And we just ask that hearts may be changed and that we may be able to trust. And in our trusting, just that little bit tip the edges in the way of welcoming love into the world. We pray for our town and our country. Pray for the world. Offer ourselves as sacrifices to be a part of that change. We do pray for particularly those uh, working in the valley at the moment. And I know the shining stars are in Aspen at the moment. And we do pray for those children that they're really being given a fantastic time. We pray for the volunteers that are looking after all those children that are coming just for a sense of joy and love in Aspen. Pray for Patricia Hill, who is very involved with Shining Stars, for Barbara Orkert and Will Welsh, Val Britt-Karlberg with her new diagnosis, and Anne Hodges, Tracy Houston, Shelley Franklin's sister, Melanie, Matthew Greenland, Galen Getsky. Think of Ellen Staplehorst, who's got back problems at the moment. We just also give thanks to for Paul and Christine Mayer being with us today and ask you to bless them. The family of Ryder, who died recently, and Jeff Schlepp, whose leg was amputated, and his wife Lynette, and family of Jack Fields. Also Kate Santo, uh, Susan's daughter, who's just had a big knee operation. And we pray for all those people that your healing power, our consciousness will aid their recovery. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.